Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. And I'm Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. Is there a sucker born every minute? I don't have the answer to that, but it is attributed to one of Connecticut's most famous residents, circus showman P.T. Barnum. Did he really say it? No one knows for sure, but we do know that he made and lost several fortunes, helped to create the American circus, exhibited a mermaid made from a monkey and a fish, and that he loved Bridgeport. Let's find out more about Barnum's over-the-top life and his lasting mark on Bridgeport, Connecticut, with my guest, Bruce Hawley, author of P.T. Barnum Builds a City in the Winter 2021 issue of Connecticut Explored. Mr. Hawley is a board member of the Barnum Museum Foundation, the Circus Historical Society, and the Circus Fans Association of America. He's also a distant cousin of P.T. Barnum. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. I think today we're going to talk about one of the most famous people from Connecticut, to say the least. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how Barnum is connected to Bridgeport? Well, Barnum uh, was a very interesting character, as I think most people know, did so many things. He was a showman. He was a politician. He was a developer. Barnum, as many people know, was born in Bethel, Connecticut. He was raised there. He worked in his dad's store, his uncle's store. He met his first wife, Charity Hallett, there. And he pretty much stayed in the in the Danbury, Bethel area until he decided to go into show business at age 25. And it was at that point that he, in 1835, got involved with uh, exhibiting uh, Joyce Heff and some other people and, and individuals in, in, in 1835 in New York City. In 1841, he purchased Scudder's American Museum, and he renamed it Barnum's American Museum. And of course, Barnum's American Museum is the famous museum that is uh, the subject of the recent movie, The Greatest Showman. In 1842, he exhibited the Fiji Mermaid. And the Fiji Mermaid was a combination of a, of a monkey and a fish. And it was, it was a uh, taxidermy exhibit that he had that created some interest. And around that same time, he heard about a young man named Charles Stratton, who lived in Bridgeport. He came to Bridgeport, met with uh, Charles Stratton's family, and he they worked out an arrangement where Charles Stratton, who was a, a small person, became Tom Thumb. And I think that's kind of where Barnum uh, first got his connection with Bridgeport, was, was through Tom Thumb. So with Tom Thumb, he goes ahead and he creates this uh, exhibit that travels all over the world, particularly in Europe, uh, in England. And uh, in 1846, um, he comes back to Bridgeport and he purchases 17 acres of land in what was Fairfield, and Fairfield became part of Bridgeport. And it was there that he built his his first mansion in Bridgeport, and it's called Aranistan. And Aranistan was one of those fancy places. It was based on George IV's uh, Oriental uh, Palace, uh, which he had created in England. And, and Barnum kind of settles into Bridgeport during this period. He becomes the uh, president of the Fairfield County Agricultural Society. And he held that position up until 1854. He really, he opened up uh, Aranistan in November of, of 1848. 
while he's living in Iranistan, he decides to expand his, his museum business. And he had his American Museum, which was in New York City. And then he opened another museum in Philadelphia. And he starts to promote other exhibits and, and individuals. In, in particular, he meets Jenny Lind and he starts to promote Jenny Lind. And Jenny Lind was the Swedish nightingale. She yeah. was a, a famous uh, opera singer that he had met. And long and the short of it is uh, now he's exhibiting Tom Thumb, uh, Jenny Lind, uh, and he's doing very well financially. And of course, he has this terrific uh, mansion at Bridgeport. Um, he decides in 1851 to become more involved in Bridgeport, and he becomes the president of Pequannock Bank. So here he goes from being a showman, um, working uh, in New York City at the American Museum. And I kind of think of him as a commuter. He had his, his house in Connecticut and got on the train every morning and went to New York for his uh, museum. But he did you know, have an interest in Bridgeport beyond uh, just living here. He decided to become involved with, with this bank, and he became the president of Pequannock Bank. It's in 1851, though, he gets more serious about Bridgeport. And that's where he um, purchases some land in what is called East Bridgeport. And he buys that land from William H. Noble in order to build uh, a new city. And, and Barnum had a vision of, a, of an industrial city on the east side of Bridgeport. Sure enough, uh, he bought the land from Noble. He acquired some other property and he built what became East Bridgeport. It was an industrial area, uh, but it also had lovely houses and it had a park, Washington Park, which is still there. And, and he really wanted to develop that part of the city. So that's probably where his greatest influence on Bridgeport was, was in creating uh, the East Bridgeport. Interestingly, that property ultimately resulted in the creation of major manufacturing companies, including Remington Arms and the Singer Song Machine Company. Originally, it was the Wheeler and Wilson Company that Singer acquired that company, and it became um, a very important part of the city of Bridgeport. Unfortunately, in the beginning of that development, he ran into problems financially when he purchased the Jerome Clock Company. And a lot of people know that he Barnum had successes, but he also had failures. And the Jerome Clock Company was one of those failures. It, it, long story, but the bottom line was he didn't do his due diligence properly. And there was some you know, misrepresentations as to what the value of the, of the company was and its business and so on and so forth. And the, the bottom line was that the Barnum really lost out uh, dramatically and was really bankrupt by the time it, it came to 1856. So so Barnum buys this property from Noble in 1851. Yep. And he eventually, in, according to our article in the winter issue, winter 2021 issue of Connecticut Explored that you authored for us, he's got over 174 acres that uh, he adds. And he That's lays right. that all out in uh, streets to make them neighborhoods, lines them with trees has Washington Park created, which is still there. And then he has an interesting business model as far as his subdivision, creating this new city in the subdivision. So he lays it out and he plots it out so that there are little, there are sections laid out for homeowners to buy. His conditions are, he says, our sales were always made on the condition that a suitable dwelling store or manufactory should be erected on the land within one year from the date of purchase, that every building should be placed at a certain distance from the street in a style of architecture approved by us, 
that the ground should be enclosed with acceptable fences and kept clean and neat with other conditions that will render the locality a desirable one for respectable residents. But the interesting thing I think about the business plan for this subdivision was that they sold every other lot. And when I first read that, I thought, why would you do that? (laughs) Why aren't you just selling every lot? Because that will make you money. But the idea was they sold every other lot. And as the value of the subdivision, the new city went up in price because people were buying lots and building houses, even those empty lots went up in value. So they were actually making a profit, they thought, more on the fact that the empty land, the lots they were not selling, were actually going up in value. So I just thought that was a really interesting uh, way to develop it. And I haven't seen that anywhere, you know, referenced anywhere else in the country with subdivisions. So now we're, we're talking a little bit about the Jerome Clock Company problems that start in 1855. So does that what does that do to his finances? Oh, it destroys his finances. Um, he was in, in debt at that point to the point where he actually had to sell off many of his assets. Uh, he assigned Iranistan. He sold off his collections at the American Museum in New York, and um, he was in bad shape. So what did he do? Uh, like in the movie Animal House, he went on a road trip. So he and Tom Thumb took off for Europe and they started uh, another tour. And it was during his tour of Europe with Tom Thumb and he was on a lecture circuit at the time, he pretty much regained his fortune. And he came back to to, uh, uh, the United States after uh, touring uh, Europe with with Tom Thumb. And he, he rebuilt his, he bought back his collections for the American Museum and went back into business in the in museum business. But that's how he recovered from the Jerome Clock Company bankruptcy, if you will. So East Bridgeport becomes part of Bridgeport in 1864. Right. But Barnum goes on to represent Fairfield as a Republican in the Connecticut State Legislature by 1865. What were some of his views and some of his policies as a legislator that he wanted to promote? Well, I think he was focused on trying to in- increase development in Bridgeport. He he wanted to uh, build a city. And so he moved in that direction as far as trying to get uh, support for, for that. It's interesting that he represented Fairfield because, as I mentioned, Aranistan was technically in Fairfield at that time. And then later, through mergers and whatnot, that became part of, of Bridgeport. And you're right. He went to, uh, to the state uh, house. And he served there for a, a number of terms, and he really um, got involved in politics in, in, a, in a big way. Uh, not only did he serve in the legislature, he ran for Congress. Uh, unfortunately, he lost. Uh, and then he ran for the state Senate, and he lost. But he became very much involved in Connecticut politics and, and the development of, of Bridgeport. He really thought of Bridgeport as his um his dream home. I think he he really liked the idea of you know, of creating this industrial city, and and so he stayed focused on that. So that's kind of where he he was, I think, politically, uh, and, and doing whatever he could to help develop Bridgeport. So I know he becomes mayor of Bridgeport in 1875, which he's 65, and I thought that was pretty uh, interesting that he's still running for office at 65. He's not retired. So among his accomplishments as mayor of Bridgeport, 
Uh, he worked to do things like improve the water supply, bring gas lighting to the streets, which is a very progressive thing, but it also adds, I think, a little bit of class and panache to your city to have gas lights. And he enforces liquor and prostitution laws. Uh, now, he was a teetotaler, am I right? That's correct. I'm kind of surprised. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> yes, he was. He was a teetotaler, and uh, he, you know, he imposed some moral restrictions on um, his developments in Bridgeport. He was an abolitionist. He he really felt that uh, you know morals were were uh, something that he was going to try to uh, enforce to create this great city, and and he did that. But yes, he was. He was a teetotaler, and that surprises some people because they think of him. You know, as a showman, not thinking about that part of him, but uh, he was a multi-dimensional guy, no doubt about that. And I think it comes through when you look at his his uh, his background, particularly on that on that score of uh, of being a teetotaler. Absolutely, I would have thought he was sort of a wild Las Vegas type of guy, but not uh, not when it came to liquor. He also no. helped found the Bridgeport Hospital and was president of that. When does his circus life? intersect with Bridgeport? When does Bridgeport become the winter headquarters for the circus? Well, that all kind of starts in, in, in 1870. Yeah, at that point, he was uh, involved with, um, uh, he had a, a traveling museum is pretty much what it was called. And in 1870, he started a circus with uh, two very important people in the circus history, W.C. Coop and Dan Costello. Coincidentally, in 1870, he became friends with Samuel Clements, uh, Mark Twain. So it was during this period that he moves from being a land developer, a politician, a museum guy into the circus world. So it's around 18, 1870. At that point, he the show gets framed and it's called P.T. Barnum's Museum, Menagerie and Circus. And it opens under, tour, under canvas in 1871 in Brooklyn. And it tours throughout you know, the Northeast and uh, it does its winter season in the Empire Rink in New York City. By 1872, uh, he moves his show onto rail. And that's a big deal because in, in the early days, their circuses traveled overland uh, from village to village. And to go to the larger cities and, and greater distances, it was important uh, to put the show on, on the rails. And he did that in 1872. He Continued his investments in New York City. He he bought the Hippotheatron in New York City, which became the Hippodrome. And that was a place where he toured, he had a circus exhibit in the wintertime. In 1873, uh, sadly, his wife Charity died while Barnum was on the road. And then subsequently, you know, he he married uh, Nancy Fish, who was a, uh, a, a much younger than him, and she was the daughter of an English friend. But his circus connections to Bridgeport, you know, continued uh, in the 1870s. In 1875, as you mentioned earlier, that's when he became mayor of Bridgeport. So he had his, he was in the circus business and he was mayor at the same time. But when we got to 1876, as we know, that was the centennial of the country. Uh, he framed a, a centennial edition of the circus, which he wanted to take on tour, which he did. The circus traveled all during this period. And, and he uh, ran for state representative again in, in 1877. So he was in circus business and a politician simultaneously for a while there. And then in 1880, he enters into his partnership with James A. Bailey uh, and, and James L. Hutchinson. And you know, Bailey, as we all know, became, became Barnum and Bailey Circus. 
which was the the main, uh, the greatest show on earth, pretty much is what he called it. And that all kind of was in the in the 1880s. It was in 1881 that he built the winter quarters. So he had been in the circus business for almost 10 years uh, with Coop and and with with Costello, and then later with with Bailey and Hutchinson. But it's in 1881 that he actually builds the winter quarters. That's on the west end of Bridgeport. And when the when the show ended its tour in November of 1881, the circus moved into its new winter quarters. And interestingly, the winter quarters stayed in Bridgeport from from 1881 until 1927. Uh, People think about uh, Sarasota, Florida as the home of the winter quarters, but it was actually in Bridgeport longer than it was in in Sarasota. So that and the winter quarters became the source of employment for many people in Bridgeport. Coincidentally, my great grandfather um, actually worked in the winter quarters. Uh, He was a wheelwright. His name was Edwin A. Noble, and uh, it was quite the thing to have this famous uh, winter quarters in Bridgeport, uh, including all of the, the wagons, the trains, the animals, and so on and so forth. It was quite, quite an operation. I'll be back for more about Kiki Barnum in a moment. Did you know that you can get our new e-newsletter, Connecticut Explored Inbox, by signing up at our website, ConnecticutExplored.org? You'll receive your bi-weekly newsletter from Connecticut Explored with the latest stories, the newest Grading the Nutmeg podcast, programs and exhibitions from our partners to see or watch this month, and more. Now back to my guest. Now, where was all this housed? Because at that time, Bridgeport is this pretty booming industrial town. You've got rows and rows of houses that are built for the newly arrived immigrants that are working in the factories. Where where is all this circus winter quarters happening? Now that's a good question. It was on a really small piece of property. It was on about ten acres along Railroad Avenue in the west end of Bridgeport, where uh, Warden Avenue is. And the property today is actually a park, and it's called Went Field. But it was important that the winter quarters be near the railroad line because, as I mentioned earlier, it was a, the show traveled by train. The property, the way it's set up, it's it's a big rectangular piece of property. Uh, interestingly, a lot of the houses around the property today were there in, in the 1800s and up to 1927. But it it was pretty tight, uh, brick buildings, uh, railroad sidings. They had buildings that they did a lot of the carpentry on and building wagons. They had buildings to house the animals. Usually the horses and lead stock went out to pasture. They sent those out of town up to Easton and and to the farmers in the area. But the elephants and the tigers and so on and so forth, they would be in in the buildings uh, right there in Bridgeport. I know that there were several occasions where they actually had fires. And we won't go into the graphic descriptions of these, but they have several fires in in the winter quarters. They did. Um, you know, if you think about it, during that period, there was uh, gaslight. A lot of things burned down. It was it was a, it was a dangerous time for, for buildings. Hay all over the place. In 1887, there was a large fire. Uh, sadly, um, he lost a lot of animals and, and equipment. And but he rebuilt and got that back on, on online. Uh, there were fires later on as well. Unfortunately, fire was uh, something that was a big part of his career. Iranistan burned down, his museum burned down in New York City. And I think it was just part of that period that, that fires were, were quite common in that time in our, in our history. But he really did um, 
rebuild all that and, and got it back online very, very quickly. What happens to him in the after the let's say the 1870s? How does his career go? Okay, so so Charity died in 1873, and he remarried a year later. So he was the mayor of Bridgeport in 1875. In, in 1877, he was elected again as representative for the state assembly. In 1878, he starts to develop Seaside Park. And Seaside Park is, is an important legacy uh, for Barnum. There was a great deal of land right along the, the, the beach area, the harbor area of Bridgeport. Barnum owned some of it. There were other people that owned parts as well. And he really wanted uh, to develop that property a, as a park for, for the city. And um, so in, it was during this period in the 1870s that he starts to work on that. He partnered with, with other people as well to um, uh, develop that property. He hired Olmsted, famous architect who did, um, a landscape architect who did Central Park to design Seaside Park. So during the 1870s, it was a combination of developing the park and, and the city uh, and, and the circus. So Seaside Park really is a very much a lasting tribute. It's still there. It's beautiful. As you said, it's an Olmsted design, which is the cream of the crop. Tell us a little bit about though how the Barnum Museum is started, what we now call the Barnum Museum. One, in addition to his, the legacy of Seaside Park, uh, there is the, the Barnum Institute of Science and History, which we call today the Barnum Museum. And in Barnum, uh, near the end of his life, he was, he was in his 70s, late 70s at the time, he purchased some property in what is downtown Bridgeport in the site of the current Barnum Museum on Main Street. And he had the um, plans designed um, uh, to build a, a very unique structure. Uh, in fact, he approved the, the final plans just three weeks before he died on April, April 7th of 1891. The, the museum was constructed and it opened on February 18th, 1893. It's interesting that the way the museum is, is built, and I noticed this earlier on when I got to, to look become involved in the museum, the first floor was set up almost like for retail. Uh, there's store windows there. And I think the plan, as I understood it, was that he was going to you know, lease out the first floor to, to a store to support the museum. And if you actually look at the building, there's a separate entrance to go upstairs into what is the museum area, which would be on the second and third floor. So he was being very practical about the fact that this museum would sustain itself. And so the museum got underway. Um, it was the Barnum Institute of Science and History. And sadly, uh, in um, 2010, it got hit with a tornado. And we're still de dealing with the aftermath of that. But um, it is certainly his... Uh, lasting legacy in, in Bridgeport is, is the Barnum Museum. If you go to the Barnum Museum uh, when they're open, what kind of Barnum-related materials do they have that you can see? Well, there are many things. You know, certainly there's a replica of the Fiji mermaid, which we mentioned earlier. Um, there are coaches, carriages from Tom Thumb, Commodore Nutt. There are uh, those pieces of furniture from his various homes. But even more importantly, there, there are many documents and, and, and matters that uh, um, posters, circus posters, letters, uh, and items like that that are of great interest to historians. Um, it is certainly a, a major research location for all things Barnum. 
The museum curator, Adrienne St. Pierre, she is uh, an expert on many of these items. Uh, she's got so many different um, uh, pieces of clothing, uh, as I mentioned earlier, letters and papers and whatnot, and she's very helpful. And Kathleen uh, Marr, of course, executive director, is, is a well-known expert as well. That's really what's in the museum now. It's, uh, it's, it's a fascinating place. Hopefully, once the um, renovations are completed, it'll be even more interactive and, and immersive is what we're looking at. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's a wonderful place for, to learn all things about all things Barnum. And where is Barnum buried? Barnum's buried at Mountain Grove Cemetery in Bridgeport. Um, interestingly, uh, uh, Tom Thumb died before Barnum. And in Barnum, uh, uh, Tom Thumb's grave is actually across the road from P.T. Barnum's grave. So they sort of look at each other and uh, they're very, very close. But it, it's a beautiful cemetery and there's a beautiful plot there, but that's where Barnum is buried. Thanks, Bruce. You too, Mary. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for being my guest today on the podcast. The Barnum Museum, originally called the Barnum Institute of Science and History, was just designated a National Historic Landmark by the U.S. Department of the Interior. Plan your visit at barnum-museum.org. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg received support from the Connecticut State Historic Preservation Office of the Department of Economic and Community Development with funds from the Community Investment Act of the State of Connecticut. I'm Mary Donahue. I hope you'll join us for our next episode of Grading the Nutmeg.